podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Uh, the first time I got to know Matt quite well was when we had a night out in Tokyo um, after Japanese. I feel like a lot of your stories start like that. <laughs> yeah. Lando especially was someone that had kind of lived and breathed his life just kind of racing, driving on the sim. You know, he was really, really in it. So you kind of knew that he was going to be okay with a lot of the the sort of day-to-day pressures because it was all he knew. Four hours in one go. So there's a regulation. Each driver can only drive four hours every six hours. Hello and welcome back to the On Track GP podcast where we are joined today by the lovely boy in blue, Richard Bradley. I'm liking the blue. Yeah, something different, something very different. Always a pleasure (laughs) to have you here, Richard. But today we are not only joined by Richard, we're joined by a second Le Mans winner with an unbelievable uh, CV from being the first teammate of one of the most incredible Formula One drivers of all time and coaching uh, along the way three of the drivers that are currently on the F1 grid and Le Mans winner, Matt House, and what a pleasure to have you here. Thank, Thank you so you much. Thank you very much for having me. And you can add to your CV now. You've been in the OnTrack GP studio. It's going straight on there. I thought it would. <laughs> yeah. um, so you two won Le Mans together. I mean, that must be a bonding experience for life, right? Yeah, it was uh, It was pretty cool. We knew, we've known each other since 2012. Um, uh, the first time I got to know Matt quite well was when we had a night out in Tokyo um, after Japanese Formula I feel like Formula a lot of your 3. stories start like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after Japanese Formula 3. And then um, we both drove for the for the same organization in 2013. I was doing a Super Formula in Japan and Matt was in their Le Mans program. And then for 2014, I shifted over to the sports car program and Matt was my teammate from there. So yeah, we were teammates for two years, traveled the world together and, and yeah, culminated in we had four or five world championship world endurance championship wins and then obviously winning Le Mans together what's that like as an experience because Le Mans in itself is just a completely crazy event you're you're there for for 24 well a lot longer than 24 hours but the race is for 24 hours you get to the end how do you feel yeah well I mean you know the thing about the endurance racing I mean we we obviously raced in FIA world endurance championship so this is uh, the, the highest level of endurance racing now, because you're in it, you know, you've spent your life every year racing high, high level. It doesn't sort of feel like anything special as such, but you do feel privileged because you get to race around the world. You know, so, for example, you race in China and then you go to Japan. This is this is really exciting, especially when you're, you know, when you're young, you get to spend a bit of time seeing the world. And obviously to be able to do it with a with a fellow Brit and, and someone that I got on well with. Uh, it just kind of made it extra special. How you feel at the end of 24 hours? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you. The, the funny thing we always say, don't you, is your body is just calibrated for seated racing position. So for at least a day, unless you're in that position, everything kind of aches. Uh, yeah. The thing is, like me and Matt, we're both uh, we're both over six foot, and you know, racing cars are small, and the uh, the Oracle 05 car that we've shared was is a particularly small car. And, you know, you're in the car for four hours at a time. And we were driving back uh, the day after 2015, um, both with a fairly decent hangover as well, as you could imagine. And we stopped at a service station. You remember, we had to go over the bridge and we couldn't actually go up the stairs normally. It was a big struggle because our legs were in such pain because they'd been in, in a cramped position for so long and they got stiff overnight. And it was a real pain just to walk upstairs normally. And it's it's very, um, you just feel a bit broken. <laughs> I'm yeah. not surprised. I mean, it's it's, it's it's you know an unbelievably long race. I'm I'm always really interested with Le Mans, particularly if you're doing you're going well, mm-hmm. right? You know, and you and, and you have three drivers for Le Mans, and, and you split it up. How you split it up is kind of up to you, right? Uh, when you're not driving, do you sleep? 
or is the adrenaline just too high and you're too focused on what's going out there? How do you take that downtime? Depends how well you're doing. I mean, again, every driver is different, but uh, we, you know, we, how many, we did two Le Mans, three, three Le Mans together. Laws, yeah. And, you know, and out, we led of, every year. Yeah, we out of those three, year. we were always in with a shout to win. Mm -hmm. So compared to my first year in 2013, when I think we, you know, we knew we weren't going to win. It was our first year. We were on the Michelin tire, which wasn't that quick. I actually slept really well. And I thought, oh, this, <laughs> this Le Mans stuff is not too bad because <laughs> you have, you know, sort of between four and six hours out of the car, yeah. which is enough to get an hour and a half, two hours. Well, mm. <laughs> when we found ourselves in a position to win, then it became more difficult to switch off. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, I think that's just natural because you know that you're in with a shout to win. Mm -hmm. So you've got the pressure of trying to sleep and trying to rest, uh, but your body doesn't switch off. And there's, there's actually quite a lot of drivers never never sleep, uh, which, uh, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. But, uh, you know, adrenaline tends to get you through, especially when you're in the car. And that's when you then feel it for two or three days afterwards. And caffeine. A and lot caffeine. of espresso. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of espresso. What's yeah. the longest stint you'll do in the car for Le Mans? Four hours in one go. So there's a regulation. Each driver can only drive four hours every six hours. Okay. Um, but yeah, normally the, uh, the the start, people don't normally stay in for four hours because you want to feel that, the, get the tyres in, just check that they're able to do uh, to do the long stints and that the wear numbers are what you predicted and everything. So the long stints normally start in the night. We call it the graveyard shift. Yeah. And that's the driver who normally gets in at 11 p.m. to about 3 a.m. And it's just... It's usually me. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do, you, how, do you, how do you decide that? I mean, I mean, it's not in the moment, I assume you decide. You have a game plan that you go in with, but is it then malleable? Can you change it as, you know, accordance with how you're feeling and how you're, how you're reading the car? Well, we have discussions before the race on who feels comfortable in certain environments. Bear in mind, we've had testing all week. So, you know, some drivers handle the night better than others. Some with a lot of experience at Le Mans because the, the sunset and sunrise are notoriously difficult. Mm -hmm. Because the sunset is directly into your eyes in one corner, which you're approaching at 200 miles an hour. and Sorry, the sunset. And the sunrise is directly in your eyes uh, on the twistiest part of the circuit. Mm. So someone with experience of Le Mans who can adapt to those conditions and those situations, maybe they're a bit stronger. Um, so it, honestly, it really depends on, on what the strengths of the drivers are and where they feel most comfortable. But you did win. Mm. You, I mean, which is yes. un unbelievable. <laughs> and, you know, you still must sometimes pinch yourself a little bit that like one of the most famous races, if not maybe the most famous race, you think you won it. I mean, that's absolutely uh, incredible. So you get to the end, 24 hours, well, we've done it. Because it's also, it's not a, a sense of, oh, we've, we've been the, the fastest. It's, it's an endurance race, mm. right? You basically got to stay out there and complete the most amount of laps. You've done it tw 24 hours, right? You complete it. Do you then party or are you like, is it then, do you have that crash or, or what, you know, emotional crash? I mean, yeah. what happens? But this is the thing is like, it, it is an adrenaline high for the reasons I've said it. You don't necessarily sleep. So your, your body's not working in a normal way. And then, so when you add into that, the, the kind of elation of, of winning the race, because it's not just, it's not just that weekend or those years. It's, you know, in most cases you've been working a decade to get there. Mm. So it doesn't really sink in, I think in a lot of ways in the beginning, but because you're full of adrenaline, you're in this sort of surreal, you know, a bit like when you have jet lag, it's a bit of a surreal experience when you're going up to the podium. And of course we, we made that mistake of drinking champagne uh, more or less straight away, wasn't it? We yes. certainly didn't didn't get very far. Yeah. So inhaling champagne <laughs> <laughs> on an empty stomach, fatigued, you know, with adrenaline as well. well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do remember it, but it was I was definitely uh, yeah I was not on this planet when we were doing our, our interviews and even on on the podium. It was just totally surreal, uh, and especially when you see all the people, the whole thing it kind of feels a uh, yeah like a dream, you know, like a dream. So oh, yeah. in every sense of the word. Um, do you have any standout moments from the win? Anything that like a particular overtake or a moment where you were like, oh my God, we're actually, 
we're going to win this thing. Is there anything that you, that, that one moment that stands out for the two of you from that, from that 24 hours? I think for me, it was, um, I finished the race and, you know, I tried not, when I got in for the last stint, I tried not to think about how long was left to just focus on not making any mistakes, hitting my marks and everything. Plus it was starting to rain a little bit as well. So just to maintain my concentration. Fortunately, it was quite a short stint. I was only in the car for, for 45 minutes for that, for that bit. Um, but then when the engineer came on the radio and said, this is the last lap, I was like, okay, this is the one time you do not mess up. <laughs> yeah, don't bin it, <laughs> like, oh, please. Yes. <laughs> and to be honest, it does go through your head a little bit like, oh my God, if I bin it, this is going to be so bad. Just do not bin it. Do yeah. not bin it. I think that, that was a, yeah, it, it's um, the whole thing though. You're just trying to focus and it's really, it's very, very tough. You know, my last time I went to try and sleep, not a chance. Didn't yeah. sleep one bit. No, I'm not. I'm not surprised. Matt, Matt, same question to you. Anything that really stands out from that Le Mans win? Uh, well, I mean, we we led all except seven laps, wasn't it? Or no, something? It was a bit less than that. It was it was three laps. Three laps. Yeah. It was definitely we we led most of it, which is unusual. Wow. It's yeah. unusual at Le Mans. You know, usually there's an element of of cycling through the fuel stops, but it was it was quite dominant. We were in a bit of a race. You know, there was another car that was keeping us uh, very honest. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think the the main thing is we all did our jobs because obviously you've still got to push on. You know, you can't make any mistakes. So I'd say a lot of the race uh, was just you're, you're proud to have just yeah didn't make any mistakes. Did my job. We're still in the lead so the things that i remember are the things that didn't go that well you know and i, I remember i actually used at one point i couldn't see at all this was the first year with the the cockpit uh, the coupe windscreen couldn't see and um you know we have a, a windscreen wiper and we have a, a wash a wash bottle like you do in your normal road car uh we'd never talked about it no one had ever said anything about it and i, I used it um and then instantly realized i couldn't see at all oh god it had obviously smeared you know across the the tear off or whatever and i actually had to pit out of sequence because i couldn't see where i was going um and of course our, our other teammate just mocked me for he's like no you never use that thing and i said well why is it there yeah. you know, <laughs> why, why put it in the car so even though it was you know it was it was sort of perfect from the outside things like that did go wrong and of course in that moment you you remember it because you're just like oh no i've, I've ruined it this is it yeah. and for the most ridiculous of, of reasons and i'd say um, there's probably stuff that went on behind the scenes in the engineering team quite that possibly, we don't yeah. even know about yeah you know with regards to like engine parameters and stuff yeah. like that which they don't tell us about because they just they don't want to worry us yeah. but you know there's always discussions going on at some point but there was a time as well at nico overshot didn't he when we were nico in overshot Leeds, indianapolis what happened to you I overshot our Nard. Yeah, so I, I also remember <laughs> looking on the TV and seeing our car stationary. And yeah. until you know the circumstances, you're just thinking again the worst because yeah, yeah. this it. this event is so hard to finish. I mean, I've raced uh, out of the times I raced there. This is the only time I've finished it. Um, wow. And we won it. So it's just very difficult to get to the end of that race. So when you see the car parked there, you just think, oh, it's all gone. And yeah, the, like both the boys managed to carry on going. So yeah. again, that was that was why we kept pushing because you mm -hmm. need a cushion so yeah in terms of standouts unfortunately because everything went so business-like i can only remember the the stupid things or the negative things but it's yeah, strange how, you, how you're, you kind of block out so much of it yeah, i guess yeah. you're mm. so uh internally focused on like the, the the goal that you kind of block it out richard i've asked you this off mm. off camera before but i'm going <laughs> to ask it on camera uh would either of you consider going again for le mans 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. no question with the right with the right circumstances no question about it yeah do you miss it um, I mean, I'm still in the stage where I still have the option to compete. I didn't do it this year because I didn't have any opportunities which excited me. And the problem is, it's still 
having every year I've been there except for one I've been I've been in a position where I've had a very competitive package and obviously 15 was a culmination of that but you know led in 14 led in 16 uh 17 we were on for second before something happened but still either way we were always we were always there and it's too difficult to do just to drive round and round in circles and whilst I'm still competitive and I'm you know I'm only just 32 I'm still very young I've still got a lot of time left in my in my career mm. if an opportunity comes where I can win it then I will jump at it immediately. Yeah. But until that opportunity comes, it's uh, until I'm older and then I'm, I know that I've, I've lost a second of pace and I'm quite happy to drive round and round and just enjoy the experience. But at the minute, I'm too competitive. Very, very, very interesting. Mm. Matt? Uh, I mean, I'm a bit different to Richard. I'm 40 now, so kind of in the, the twilight years even of endurance racing. But You I, look great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's years of clean living, obviously. <laughs> Certainly until I met Richard. <laughs> so could you, be, could you be tempted back to have another look at Le Mans? I mean, in the same as Richard, it's all, it all comes down to how competitive you can be. You know, the whole event is quite, you know, you, it, it's quite draining and there's a lot of pressure on you because it doesn't matter which way you look at it. When you're at that circuit in a car, someone's investing in you, someone's relying on you. So, you know, there's no point doing it unless you're, you're, you know, you have a chance to win. That was actually where we were quite lucky, weren't we? In the mm. KCMG years, we always went there with a package driver lineup, car, everything to win. So uh, absolutely, if the opportunity came to be able to do that, it's just, I suppose I'm pragmatic enough to think, ah, this probably wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't happen. But if it did, absolutely, I'd jump at the chance. Because actually, when I drove in 2016, I'd had most of that year off. Mm. Uh, so I hadn't been in the car for six months and I jumped in and within three laps I was on the pace you know you don't uh, you I'd don't say forget. in 16 we were probably in a better position to win it than we were in 15 until yeah. circumstances went what happened but that's Le Mans yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know and, and every every team every year will have a story about what happened at Le Mans and we had one of those in 16 but I yeah. would say we were definitely we were race wise as a package as a driver unit we were stronger in 16 yeah. with the experience than we were in 15 yeah so yeah obviously keep fit and uh keep kind of as race ready as possible mm. so yeah i'd love to because it's just such an amazing event to be be mm. part of you you can feel the passion that you both have for that mm. particular event i yeah. mean it's it's so exciting and uh if it does come up again, I bagsy that I'm coming with you to document <laughs> the whole thing, be your your uh, personal videographer or whatever. Uh, but Done. really, really, yeah. Re no, yeah, deal. Perfect. Deal. We'll shake on it. Uh, no, it's great. I mean, and, and once again, congratulations. I mean, absolutely Thank incredible. Um, let's move, uh, because I teased in your, uh, in your intro uh, that you were the first, uh, Matt, you were the first um, teammate of one of the greatest drivers of all time. Let's move to F1. <laughs> who was who were you the first teammate of? Yeah, so in uh, 2001, uh, I went to uh, Formula Renault in the Winter Series uh, with Manor Motorsport, and it was a very top team at that time. And uh, and I re still remember the first time they told me who my teammates were going to be because the first name they gave me was a guy called Nelson van der Poel, who was a world karting champion. I was like, oof, that's quite tough. Um, they said another chap called Ben Reeves, who was in T cars, you know, very young. So I was like, oh, not not really sure about him. And then someone called Lewis Hamilton. Now, um, it's a it's a bit of a joke that because, of course, even then we all knew who Lewis was. You know, Lewis had been been kind of blazing a trail in the karting and he had this link with McLaren, uh, which obviously was mm -hmm. McLaren Mercedes at the time. Um, but, yeah, that was my kind of first um, I'd done some club racing. This was my first entry into national categories. Mm -hmm. And it was also moving into Manor Formula Renault where Kimi Raikkonen had just left. You know, he just won the championship. So, yeah, I all of a sudden found myself kind of in and amongst all of these uh, names. So, yeah, it was uh, the first time Lewis uh, ever raced a car. Uh, he was my teammate. 
Wow. Well, well I, I mean, was his teammate, probably would be the, the right, <laughs> that'd be the no, correct no, no. way to say it. He he would say he would say I was lucky enough yeah. to be Matt House's teammate. <laughs> um I mean I mean so he he was he must have been a year younger than you. He was one year younger. Yeah, yeah. one year younger. Um at that age, how old, how old were the two of you at that time then? Uh, 16, 17. Can you tell that he was going to be something special at that age when you were racing alongside him? Um, I th uh, in retro it's really hard to, to separate, obviously, in retrospect. I think the, the thing about Lewis was that a lot of people said at the time, oh, he's doing loads of extra testing. And, then, you know, he wasn't or certainly not that I ever saw. I think that McLaren, because remember, Ron Dennis was a, was a big part of guiding his career. Yeah. So I don't think they wanted to give him an unfair advantage. You know, they just wanted to put him in and see how he how he mm -hmm. went. So um, and I, I remember thinking, um, ah, well, I'm not sure he's anything special because certainly off, off the, the first few tests, he was just where you'd expect him to be. I was a little bit ahead of him because I'd done a year of Formula Ford 1600. Okay. So not high level, but it was more car racing than Lewis had done. I also I didn't mean I expected to be quicker than him, but I sort of thought, oh, well, I should have a chance. So nothing about his driving in the early uh, sort of tests we did suggested how, how good he was going to be. There was a couple of flashes. I think what was really clear from the beginning was just how how kind of confident and how self-assured he was, mm. but not in an arrogant way. You know, he had a good unit around him. His dad was there with him. Nicholas was was there. His, his brother was still in a wheelchair at that time. Um, and, you know, so he was actually a very nice guy, Lewis was. Very compassionate, always sort of cared about what you were doing. And when it became clear in the earlier tests that I was a little bit quicker, there was then a mutual respect, you know, uh, from that. Um, and so I always felt that compared to what I, anyone would think, oh, he's probably arrogant. He probably knows he's going to Formula One and that's why he's so friendly. And I think he's just genuinely like that. So I think that that's a big character, like it's a sign of strength, yeah. not a weakness to be like that. Uh, and when you look at his career and how he's kind of gone through his Formula One years, I think that kind of personality that he has, which is very calm, very self-assured, has really been, uh, you know, to his um, to his benefit. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, I haven't even prepared the next question because I was just so engrossed in what you were saying. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your uh, junior career. Yeah. Um, you must have raced against a, a whole bunch of guys that have gone off, same as Richard, and to all sort of different forms of motorsport. Um, are there any of the guys that have sort of recently been on or still on the F1 grid that you that you raced against that you were like, oh wow, they've they've got something they've got something special? Yeah, I mean certainly because at the time I was racing in early noughties, the UK was the main scene, so mm. everybody came from everywhere to race there. You know, if you were South American, if you were Australian, Kiwi, Japanese, you know, uh, that was the place you came. So in a, in a way, I was there at the at the height of when when all the drivers were coming over, and in fact, it stayed that way until about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Then it became all European. Um, so yeah, so at that time, definitely uh, Lewis Hamilton was was you know uh, eventually went on to to really show that he was. He did okay. Special. He's done all right, hasn't he? he, he, he Not did too okay. bad. <laughs> he did okay. Um, and and from that era, I'd say Jamie Green was a guy that that was also really quick. Came English guy came out of uh, karting. Uh, I think he made it as far as DTM. Was DTM, his, his he had a very thing. successful career. So that's the German Touring Car Championship. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and he, yeah, he did very well for himself there. He was a Mercedes or an Audi driver for, for years. Yeah. Uh, other standouts, uh, Oliver Jarvis raced him in Formula Ford. He's now, uh, uh, you know, very successful driver in endurance. Sam Bird, you know, top driver in Formula E. Uh, Oliver Turvey, um, 
he was a McLaren test driver. You know, these are all British guys, but they mm. just happened to be, I think, the the best ones that I raced or the guys yeah. that I really rated highly um, that didn't quite make it to Formula One for, for lots of different reasons. Well, I think all of, all of those guys you mentioned, they've all gone on to make a very, very good career in motorsport. And, they're, you know, they're still exceptionally fast and exceptionally good at what they're doing now. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things where there's, there, you know, Formula One is obviously the pinnacle of the pyramid, but there are many good avenues where there are professional racing drivers at a high level and they've just had the opportunity to go and make a career somewhere else and are having you know, a very good time driving very well because of it. Yeah, I find motorsport so interesting because it's so, as you say, F1 is the pinnacle, but it's, it's, it's actually very big and very diverse mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. amount of jobs that you can take. Um, Matt, I know one of the other things that you do is almost advising companies on who might be the next big thing and where to invest their money in terms of a driver. Talk to me a little bit about that. How does that process work? How do you go, do you go scouting or do you, how does it work? Well, I mean, I spent, obviously, I had a 20 year career as a driver, but about five or six years into that career, I started doing a lot more driver coaching. Uh, you know, driver coaching is certainly something in the noughties, I would say. It wasn't a lot of people doing it or there wasn't a lot of teams using them, you know, only on a very kind of, oh, this driver will come and help. So no one was really pushing the level of what a coach uh, could be. Um, it's completely different now. You know, I mean, there's a lot of driver coaches out there that have made a true profession of it. Yeah. So in that time, obviously, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about your own driving, but you, you see a lot year in, year out, you know, because then fast forward a decade and I've had 10 years of eight to 12 drivers a year coaching them wow. in different formulas. Um, and so and I also during my, my career kind of stalled around 2008. Uh, once I got to Formula 3 level, uh, it stalled a bit. And so I went to university, got myself a degree in psychology with the idea being that I could, again, really reinvest that into the, the coaching, you know, making wow, that more of a really thing. So that but, you know, really uh, the the state of psychology in motorsport at that time was very limited so i would say that i didn't pursue motorsport psychology i just used what i learned uh, and applied it to what i was doing in the coaching mm. so in terms of um how it works of course is there is a there is a blueprint arguably for what makes a driver great but it's, it's you know it's very flexible you know if that's probably a contradiction in terms uh, but there's many different ways to get there so you just basically have to understand the different attributes that any driver needs to have the things that they can learn the things which can't be learned um, and ultimately you are um, using your your gut instinct you know as well as like a a set of criteria so of course uh, i was a little bit involved with racing steps foundation the rsf they were uh, a great organization that were bringing drivers completely funding drivers from the bottom uh, all the way to the top so that's james collado oliver roland jake dennis ben barnico i mean these guys have all gone on to make great careers james collado yeah. just won le mans overall in in the ferrari um, the jake dennis won formula e championship this year yeah yeah so jake was his reigning formula e champion so in the latter years of the rsf i started getting involved with their selection process oh. so uh, so yeah that that's really how that works and um so it's all about experience you know you, again i could sit down and teach someone how to look for drivers um but it really helps to have your feet on the floor mm. circuit uh, week in week out to to really know what you're looking for it's such a sport that's so driven by data do you find yourself when you're looking for somebody that you know has um that you think could go on and do magical things do you find yourself following the data or is there still an element as you've said having feet on the floor that kind of gut feeling or you just see something or a spark in an eye almost yeah, well, obviously, the 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 really clear thing is they you know they have to be fast. This goes without saying. But then defining talent or speed is quite complicated because lots of drivers can be fast on their day. 
lots of drivers can be fast when they're not under pressure. You know, mm -hmm. it's looking for the drivers that can be, you know, they have the talent and the speed has to be kind of a given. And then what you're looking for is that kind of maturity and that emotional intelligence. That's that thing that goes back to what Lewis seemed to have naturally as a 16 year old, uh, which is just, you know, it's one thing when you're a rookie, you can hide behind the fact that you're a rookie. So, oh, I'm quick, you know, but I'm, you know, so when you're quick, it's because you're a god. And when you're slow, it's because you're a rookie. But that doesn't last very long. Mm. What really measures how good you are is can you be consistently quick? You know, can you keep doing it as you go up through the formula? Can you keep doing it every year in Formula One? And that's when you need that other side of your personality needs to be, you know, quite sort of calm and measured. So uh, that I would say is something data. Yes, data. You've got you've got to look at all of these things. But you also just have to analyze how a driver copes with stress you know how they how they cope with different situations and you know sometimes the driver's personality off the track is the complete opposite of when they put the helmet on other times it kind of blends in you know and and you yeah. can tell how a driver will be on the track because of how they're off the track so you just kind of work with what you've got um and even as i say you can have five different amazing drivers with completely different personality types there will be sort of things that are common uh, in there okay. certain traits and the big one as i say is is just being not not just academically intelligent and able to understand the car but just really being self-aware you know knowing how to deal with that relentless pressure um, and, and not let it affect your driving i think that's the other thing as well like you were saying about the excuse of being a rookie and you can hide behind that when you're in the junior categories once you're in your second year the expectation ramps up severely and you're expected to win the championship if you're if you're one of the supposedly talented people and it's extremely high level and you have to go from having an easy excuse to the pressure of being able to fight for a championship and if you have to spend you know three years in one of the very junior categories say formula four or an equivalent there's a very very big damage that that does to your reputation the same even goes for formula two mm. if you're not competing in your second or third year in formula two then you know even if you win the championship in your fifth year your reputation has already been severely damaged by that wow even if you win even if you win it even that's at just F2 wild level. yeah and that's why you see drivers who have won formula two in their fifth or sixth year um they haven't really gone on to do anything else much you know there's a few examples or at least on a driving capacity there's a few recent examples of that fabio lima um david aval Secchi, both all both very very fast drivers i mean they won the gp2 or formula 2 championship but because they didn't do it immediately then there's a bit of a oh they won it because they're in their fifth year sort of vibe about brutal. it brutal that's why piastri is so standout because every championship he won he won it in his rookie year which yeah. is incredibly tough to do and i, I think actually that <clears throat> that brings us on to one of the big topics when you're talking about talent spotting and this is what all the f1 teams the the red bull machine and all of these uh, these people are looking for is that uh i mean in moto gp they refer to them as aliens you know i, I prefer that to the x factor that's an appalling it's <laughs> an appalling way to describe a, a certain drive but you know these are the the standouts and what makes what makes an alien or what makes someone that bit special it, it just means that they they really um they go against convention so in other words yes any driver can be really talented and after three four five years they can win a championship but it's those ones that turn up and they do something they shouldn't like immediately go faster than the established drivers in a, in a given formula this is always very clear that there's no excuses there then you know they're they're literally turning up you can't explain it because they've done more mileage or because they're older and more experienced they're just doing it on pure talent yeah. Kimi Raikkonen was like this when he arrived in Formula Renault 2000 
26 equal cars and, and he was winning those races by 20 seconds <sighs> that just shouldn't happen yeah uh you know when um for example yeah when uh, leclerc george russell all these guys did their junior category they won f3 and f2 in their in their first years mm. didn't they so these are the things and at the moment we've got piastri and then we've got lawson and, and alex palau you know for yeah. an indy car and these these are the guys that are they're just kind of doing things they shouldn't they're turning up in super formula and immediately being quick and this is what those f1 teams will be very well aware of you know in, in a kind of a cutthroat industry with drivers that have won all the championships they will look at how long it's taken them to do it um and you know the kind of the the, the best thing about sport in general as well as the most sadistic thing is you're only as good as your last performance mm. you know so you can have won everything on the way up the junior formula but if you have one shaky year before your potential avenue into f1 then your career in f1 especially is finished you know you i think we're, we're kind of seeing a little bit of that at the minute with logan Sargent. yeah you know he was epic through the junior categories extremely highly rated and did some incredible things that he shouldn't have been doing um, and you know, against Lawson last year, he was he, he was very very similar, and he's gone into Formula One, and it's just not worked for him. Now, at least on the outside, without talking to the teams, his street credibility has dropped significantly because of this, mm. and that's just how brutal the industry is. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, well, look, let's sidestep slightly uh, from there in into F one. Uh, you mentioned as well, Matt, that you do some coaching and you've coached a couple of guys. Again, I teased it in the intro, uh, coached a couple of guys that are on the grid now. So uh, Lando, George and Charles, right? Yep, yep. Have I missed anyone? Nope. I that's mean, that's unbel unbelievable. Uh, how old were these guys when you first started working with them? So out of those three, the first was Charles. I think he was 15, uh, uh, roughly 15, 16. So this was in Formula Renault. Um, he actually did the Alps, which is the South European Championship with Fortec, which is the team I was working with. Uh, and then he did some select EuroCup races, you know, so he had a driver coach in Alps and then I looked after him in EuroCup. Um, so yeah, he would have been uh, 15 or 16. George, about the same, Lando, about the same 16 something yeah. like this so i always had them at that real entry level point you know that's the great thing actually about coaching in formula renault every year you get a year older and the drivers stay the same yeah. age yeah you know so you get to you get to really get a proper uh, read on on their ability because they're all pretty much arriving with next to no uh, car racing experience i remember when you uh, when you coached charles for the first time uh, you you know we were just talking and you sent me a whatsapp and you said watch out for this kid he's going to be a little bit special yeah and I've kept, I've followed him literally through his ranks purely because of that, you know. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, do you feel that there's an element, because they're children at this point. If yes. you're 50, 15 years old, unbelievably talented. You know, I've done an episode with Richard before that you start, you start driving at the age of, I mean, professionally, or, or you can officially start driving from seven. Is that right? Well, well, I mean, you can start, there's a category now for five to eight year olds. Oh my God. I know, which I think is completely bonkers, by the way, but that's the way that the things are going. But yeah, you can, you can race in cadets in the British Casting Championship from eight years old. From eight, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so these guys started, you know, behind the wheel from eight years old. When you, they come to you at 15, obviously they have coaching before and they're going to have a lot of coaching in the future. Do you feel there's an element of like, almost you have a duty of care over them as people rather than just their driving ability as well? Yeah, massively, especially when, you know, the, when you're a bit older compared to them, you know, you really feel that kind of, they, they do, they start to look younger, they start to appear younger. So of course you, you know, you, you know that they're, 
if they've been in karting since seven or eight years old, they've kind of not known anything different. Lando especially was someone that had kind of lived and breathed his life, just kind of racing, driving on the sim. You know, he was really, really in it. So you kind of knew that he was going to be okay with a lot of the the sort of day-to-day pressures because it was all he knew. Other drivers, you can tell they're a little bit sort of scared or they're not really sure what to expect. Um, So yeah, you have a duty of care because the whole point of being a good driver coach is to help them with their whole game. You know, an engineer can sit down with them and analyze one data trace against another data trace, tell them where they're braking too early, where they can get on the power earlier. This this is obviously a job that a coach does, but the engineer can do. What you're trying to do as a coach is understand, okay, what personality are they? Do they need pushing? Do you need to be gentle around them? Whatever you need to do to get the best out of them. Mm. And when they're 15, 16, they, they don't know that either. You know, yeah. they're, they're still maturing like as, a, as an adult or as a human. Um, uh, but as what I would say about these these drivers we're talking about, Charles, Lando, George, you know, you, you almost forget they're 15, 16. They're so mature. You know, they don't bring any of those normal things you would associate with teenagers of any kind. They don't bring it. They're so professional that it's more just about coaching them through the, you know, the whole experience, the learning curve, because everyone's got to go mm. through that learning curve. And all your job is as a coach is to to accelerate them through it, uh, depending on where they, where they start uh, and, and try and make sure that they do it in as short a time as possible, but also develop. Because the earlier you can develop those skills, the more they become like imprinted. It's really hard once you're mid twenties to learn those things, you know. Yeah. Um, that's where I think if if I'd have had a coach when I was sixteen, I would have learned a lot of things a lot faster. It's so interesting that that's been such a dramatic change in the last sort of fifteen or twenty years. That, yeah. I mean, it seems, it seems crazy, really. Like because we get the point now, particularly with Formula One, like the, mm. the the real what feels like the only variable is actually the driver in the car. The cars yeah. could basically drive themselves mm-hmm. without a driver. And you think fifteen years ago they weren't they weren't thinking about coaching the one thing that could could change because i know richard that you do coaching as as well yeah but i still feel like in motorsport it's an area which isn't really being maximized or used to the most when you look at a premier league football club right say you know being a gooner arsenal how many coaches they have for not just the first team but the under 23s all of the other youth teams and everything and you look at you look at motorsport and the numbers involved in motorsport it's an area which when you compare it to other sports i don't think it's being is has it's still maturing and it's definitely getting better but it hasn't been appreciated in uh, in the same way um but you know it all but the, the type of coaching that you do with motorsport is very different because engineers can work with a lot of it i think what matt said about trying to connect with the drivers is, is very correct the, you know i've mentioned before um jem bolabassi the kid who i help a lot in formula two yeah and i've traveled with him every you know relentlessly and he's like a brother to me now we've got very very close based on that because you have to try and find a way to connect and have a relationship with them to get the most out of them and also apart from that once you gain trust from the driver i know now that i could tell i could tell jem that the uh, the first corner in in let's say Bahrain, even though it's a second gear hairpin, if I told him to take it flat at sixth gear, he'd probably do it. He'd be really <laughs> stupid to do it, but he probably <laughs> would. You know, and you need to build that trust, that yeah, relationship. Trust there, yeah. So it's a very different way of connecting to the the individual that you have in other forms of professional sport. But I still think that it's an area which motorsport hasn't hasn't optimized properly yet. It feels, yeah, it feels like there's all it would take would be one person to really crack that, and mm. that could be 
the next kind of breakthrough within the sport almost if you coach coach these guys correctly i mean definitely like if you look at tennis you know these kinds of sports coaches like a, a player's performance can change completely because of the the coach that they're with you know mm. you have a, a, a bad run of form you change coach you're suddenly better i'm not going to sit here and say that's the same in racing because the car is, is such a bigger component of the whole thing um, but it's true that I think the level of so so the likes of Lando, Charles, and George that we've mentioned, they've all come through in the, in the tens, you know. So starting 2014, uh, arriving sometime in the 18, 19 in F1, I think they were so complete when they arrived, you know, as a driver, you know, getting into an F1 car for the first time. Um, the level of coaching they require at this point is 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 less relevant because of the level of coaching okay. they've received prior to that point. I think Lewis Hamilton was maybe one of the first guys that, that was like that because Lewis, if you remember when he arrived in F1 in 2007, his first teammate was Fernando Alonso who just won two world championships. They were in a huge battle with McLaren with Ferrari. Uh, this was Massa and Raikkonen. So I mean, all four of those guys were winning races and battling for that championship and Lewis was in his first year of Formula One and his fifth year of car racing but you wouldn't have known it you know yeah. he just dealt with all of the different pressures you know um, and he had alonso in full uh full complete animal mode yeah yeah he know, completely rattled the, fernando yeah with yeah. some of the things that happened you yeah. know for for a rookie to deal with those yeah. pressures and you know he had he, he had a bad race in brazil which ultimately cost him the championship but you would have to say, disregarding that bad situation, he was probably the stronger of the two over the year. Yeah, yeah and, and it comes back to that thing of the, the fact that Lewis uh, had had that support from McLaren, from Mercedes, from Ron Dennis. I mean, again, we talked about it at the time, like, oh, wow, this has never been done before. And it, it's true, it hadn't really. Mm. So I think had Lewis not had that support, his talent would still have got him quite far. Let's say he had the same money and the same talent, the same support, but he didn't have that guidance uh, from what he was getting in within McLaren, the junior program. Yeah. Um, would he have been able to cope as well in that first year, 2007? I, I don't believe he would. I highly doubt it. So yeah. I think to me, that's the big validity with coaching now is that everybody's aware if you bring a young driver in and you're going to spend millions and millions of, of pounds to get them to Formula One, mm. you can't neglect the uh, psychological and the, the coaching side. Whereas there was a time in racing where this perhaps wasn't that, you know, and there's actually, there's a lot of drivers, uh, Heinz Halfrensen comes to mind, you know, some of these drivers that depending on where they were, they succeeded or failed. You know, mm. so Heinz Alfrensen was amazing in a Sauber. He went to Williams, where notoriously Williams were not a team that really looked after the drivers in that kind of way. You know, you were you were an object to do a job. Uh, you weren't there to, they never put their arm around you and Heinz Alfrensen kind of struggled in that environment. But then when he went to Jordan, which was supposedly a lesser team than Williams, he you know he was fighting for the world championship in 1999 against yeah. Mika Hakkinen and, yeah. and uh, well, Schumacher obviously had his leg break, but Eddie Irvine yeah. at the time. Yeah, so no, no amount of data is going to fix, you know, that issue that Frenson had with Williams. That was the philosophy that Williams had. You turned up and did the job or you didn't, and that was that. Yeah. So I think the teams are much more aware of this now. And when you look at what the drivers have to do in a given weekend, you know, there's a lot of things to think about. A lot of things on the car, you know, they're, they're still very active with DRS, mm. CRS, the regeneration, mm -hmm. the brake balance, and it's all just military. And that comes yeah. from starting off really early with treating everything like the job that it is yeah. and trying to detach all of the uh, the emotion from it you know and, and that's that's why i think because when you look at formula one now as well you're talking about a two second spread or not even that sometimes from the front to the back there was a time when there was two seconds between first and, and fourth mm. now yeah. it's, it, it's true the cars are closer but that just shows you you make one error you know one error on your qualifying lap break a touch early or, or maybe go a bit on the wrong setup direction you're now 16th instead of 
fifth. And that is where, as I say, the, the drivers are operating at such a high level now. I think. Yeah, crazy. Um, you don't have to answer this, <laughs> but out of uh, Charles, George and Lando, who's going to end their career with the most world championships? Oh, yeah, that spot now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you were their coach, so, you know, you know better than better than a lot. I mean, obviously, in Formula One, it's going to depend all on circumstance. Charles being with Ferrari, um, if he stays with Ferrari, I mean, I, I think he's the one that still hasn't shown exactly what he can do. You know, Carlos has obviously been really strong this year. Um, but I think from what everyone has seen of Charles in the junior formula, you know, he has got that unbelievable gift and talent um, that when things all start to click, then then yeah i think he's going to be unstoppable um george is definitely you know again being in mercedes they haven't got the best car right now but it will improve you know they will they're a juggernaut they will come back and the way george is is kind of taking lewis on at the moment suggests that you know he's also and he was a guy also turned up in bahrain didn't he first race yeah. nearly won it uh, again alien just just shouldn't happen but it, it did mm. so I, I would say that um from where those two are sitting, if I had to pick, because Lando, you know, McLaren as well, it, I just don't don't know if McLaren can take those two on. Yeah. Uh, Lando's capable of it. It's very clear that I think all three of those drivers are on the same level, but the opportunity is going to be there for Charles or George. My gut feeling is always going to be Mercedes, you know, so I think George can can probably be the one to win the most championships. I think wow. I'm going to say that. But but he, he, any three of them in terms of pure level, they're very hard to separate. Yeah, very diplomatic answer. <laughs> very good. Richard, you, yeah. Yeah, you, didn't, you didn't coach any of those three, but just out of interest out of those three, who do you think will end their career uh, with the most world championships? George, Lando or Charles? Um, I'm going to go Lando. I'm gonna Whoa! Go, I'm going to go Lando. I think Lando will because, again, I think that Charles... Charles is in a position where he seems like he's going to be a long-time Ferrari driver. He's going to be a career Ferrari driver, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I think that, it, you know, uh, I get that feeling he's very indebted to, well, not indebted, but connected to the, to that, that brand. Um, I don't think, uh, I, I just think that Lando, Lando has this ability and he just gets on with it quietly and there's a lot less drama or potential drama that would surround Lando. Whereas George, I always feel that there could be a little bit of uh, a little bit of emotion that could come into it and and have an effect on something. I think we have seen that a few times um, over his career. Not often. We're talking minute details here. Um, but Lando, for me, just seems calm, gets on with the job, goes back to what Matt was saying about the, that military precision. Um, and I think Lando is also going to be pretty brutal in the driver market and obviously Red Bull are talking about him. Yeah, that's the factor is that he could dip over to Red Bull. So Matt, you, you've gone for George. Richard, you've gone for a Lando. Lando. And as a Ferrari fan, I'm going to go for Charles. There, there we go. go. Okay. We'll have a discussion in about 15, 20 years and we'll see <laughs> yeah. what the score is. Should we put another 10 quid on it or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's have a little talk um, just generally uh, about the F1 season. Firstly, how have you found it this season? What are your sort of overriding thoughts about the season, about that, that Red Bull dominance is insane? Yeah, I mean, but it, Formula One over the years, you, you have these periods of this kind of dominance. You know, it's not like the first time it's happened. Mm -hmm. You have that thing where the best teams or the, you know, they tend to have the most money, which means they can invest the most in the car, get the best drivers. 
So, you know, it's a bit cyclical. Hamilton had his period of dominance with the Mercedes. We remember Vettel's period of dominance with the Red Bull, Schumacher's dominance with the Ferrari. You know, so this is nothing unusual. I think in a way, uh, it just would be nice if it was a little bit more of a of a contest. You know, Red Bull have just got that little bit f- further ahead and Verstappen is not lacking anything. You know, he's, he's really, you know, and I think the, the biggest... Um, disappointment this year is that the Perez has really struggled to be anywhere near Max you know because the one thing we have to look forward to when there's one car dominating is at least an inter-team battle you know Mm. this has been the the, you know the days of Schumacher having a support Michael Schumacher having a support teammate you know this isn't really done anymore you know the teams tend to get two of the best drivers they can and then have them both fighting but it's clear that's just not happening at at red bull so we really you know i think i I read recently our social media is dipping because of verstappen's dominance well you know it won't it won't last forever you know the other teams will keep on pushing uh a regulation change at the very least will will neutralize things Mm -hmm. um and so in terms of this year max deserves uh, what he's doing you know he's absolutely exceptional and um i think we all would just like to see them stagnate a bit so that maybe Ferrari and Mercedes can get involved in the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got McLaren, you know, really coming strong. So I think that's the most exciting thing of this year, seeing McLaren kind of back where they should be. Yes. And also with two relatively young drivers, it's a big gamble for a team to take two young drivers yeah. like that. But isn't it paying off? I think so. On, yeah. a si- on a side note, like coming, you know, we are, as you, you mentioned that you helped George, Lando and Leclerc. And obviously you're working in those categories around that era. Now, you didn't work directly with Max. And obviously I heard it from my own side about the hype from him, especially from karting. And, and you know, I still had a lot of connections there. Now, what did you hear about Max when he was coming up through those joint junior formulae before he got into into F1? What was what was the talk about him relative to the abilities of drivers like Charles, for example? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, at Fortec, uh, when I was there, we did, Max tested uh, with Fortec in Formula Renault at Silverstone because I, I always remember Silverstone was a great place for winter testing. And whenever drivers arrived, you know, you look into your database of drivers. It's like, okay, we're going to show you some on-board video. What would you like? Verstappen? Norris? uh, Leclerc? You know, uh, Russell? We had them all. You know, we had all these drivers. Um, So we did, Max did test, but I wasn't there, unfortunately. Mm. I completely missed it. So, um, and he, Max was a guy that I first really heard about um, when he was karting. You know, everyone said, oh, he's coming. Mm. He's going to be amazing. But people said that very early on about Nick DeVries. And Nick DeVries, you know, didn't really make a big splash, did he, when he arrived in cars? No, it took him quite a long took time him, to get used took to Took him it, a yeah. while. And so so Max arrived and went straight into Formula 3. Um, which yeah, was unheard of at that time. Which, you know? which was unheard of. And then all of a sudden he's in Formula 1. So yeah. to be quite honest, like I hadn't really heard too much about him. Um, certainly not negative or positive. You know, it's mm. just indifferent. I'd, I'd heard all sorts of things about the way his dad was going about pushing him. I think that I heard. Mm. Uh, but no, not there wasn't really a lot of chatter about him. And then all of a sudden, he's in Formula One. That was the thing that kind of surprised me. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I remember it being strange because you looked at him when he went into Formula Three, and then he went with Van Amersfoort as well, yeah. Yeah. which is not one of the regular front-running teams in Formula mm. Three at that time. Formula Three goes in ebbs and flows like Formula One did. Um, but yeah, there wasn't. There was hype around him, but it wasn't, you know, there was as much hype around De Vries when he was in karting. There was, yeah, yeah. You know, if not more, to be honest, because Nick, some of the karting results were incredible. Um, but, you know, it was strange to see someone jump straight into a Formula 3 car. That's that's unheard of in that era. 
And I think only prior to this, Kimi Raikkonen had done one year of Formula Renault and gone straight into F1. Mm-hmm. Before that, the least you could do was two years. Like Button did one year Formula Ford, one year Formula 3, then Formula 1. Mm-hmm. Now it's like Lewis did, uh, he did Formula Renault for two years, Formula 3 for two years, Formula 2 or GP2. So it has, you know, the four or five years is quite normal. You know, I'd say Max was rushed into F1, mm. uh, really, and had to do a lot of his development in the eyes of everyone, yeah. as we all saw, you know, because he was quite crash happy. And um, in fact, the only time I did see him uh, in, in action in F3 was at Poe. Uh, when he had an almighty crash in front really? of me yeah so so and then I was like oh, I was quite an easy circuit to yeah. have an almighty crash that's, that's <laughs> true yeah we can't hold that against him but I was yeah. like oh yeah I remember I remember I remember Yoss you know so maybe in karting circles there was a lot of hype about him but it, it was more the fact that he was rushed into F1 you're sort of thinking ah okay they, they've obviously seen something mm. you know they've it's not a it's not something that's pure hype they obviously really believe in him and you could be forgiven for thinking after one or two years that mm. oh well maybe it's been a bit misplaced because he was still making sort of strange errors. He was going mm-hmm. for gaps that weren't there, you know, just kind of ruthlessly, you know, you couldn't overtake him, which you still can't now. Yeah. Uh, you, you crashed, you know, he just wouldn't give an inch, but of course he's just kind of polished that, but he's just done it in F1. Whereas mm-hmm. I think the likes of Lewis Leclerc and Russell, they did their polishing in the junior formula, which is the more cost-effective way to <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah, it's a bit cheaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh, and gives Liam, the driver. Liam Lawson's had an incredibly, uh, incredible breakout season and quite fortunate for him, really, with the, the Ricardo injury has given him that opportunity. And he has put a stamp down to say, put me in a team. What do you make of his season? Uh, yeah, I mean, if we... If you've been racing in Japan like Richard and I have, mm-hmm. you always keep an eye on Super Formula because mm-hmm. Super Formula is a route that the F1 teams will often send their drivers. I mean, Red Bull or, or the, the programs will send them because the cars are very high grip, very high performance. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of drivers there have been doing it year in, year out for up to 10 years. So the level is Even insane. Some, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, if, you, if you're running around midfield in Super Formula, it's already impressive. Wow. And Lawson, just like uh, Alex Palo before him, just kind of turned up and immediately started setting the pace. Um, so I think Lawson was already showing himself, and, and he obviously did really well in the junior mm. formula before that. So again, the talk around the paddock was always, oh, this kid's going to be special, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... The fact that he got his break um, through Ricardo's break uh, <laughs> was was very fortuitous because that gave Red Bull at least a, you know the, the, it would have been really hard for them to to select Liam instead of Ricardo uh, when when Ricardo came back. So this gave them the excuse to do it, and at least they well that's what he can do. So I'm sure I'm sure they have all sorts of political reasons why he's not getting the race seat next year, but at least they know well he's going to be fine. Yeah. So, you know, so the big question now will be, do they find a way to get him in the Williams? Yeah. Do they make him a, a, a test and reserve driver? Whatever. He's young. He doesn't need to come into F1 in 2024. But Red Bull can say, right, yep, signed off. You know, yeah. he's, he's come in and exceeded expectations, which means they've got, not that they need a replacement for Max, because Max has still got many years of racing ahead. But, you know, they've got four seats. I do believe they are leaning towards wanting a strong teammate for Max. Yeah. They, they want another driver that's of that level. Um, and we've seen guys like Alex Albon. You know, he he is an amazing driver. Didn't quite work out as Max's teammate. So Red Bull themselves are probably really confused as to mm. why do we keep putting these drivers next to Max? <laughs> the curse of Max. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you go against an unbelievable driver and you, you, you're not going to look as good. And I, there's an element maybe of them sort of pushing a little bit too mm. hard to try and keep up and then and then making errors you've been pretty impressed with Liam Lawson this season though right yeah yeah I mean as I said having been at a lot of the super formula races this year you know I've, I, having raced in super formula myself 
uh, I know exactly how hard that category is. Mm. And so to do what he's doing is, is, is very impressive. So to be honest, when he, the only race I was surprised by his performance at in Formula One was Singapore. Because having driven Singapore as well, that place is extremely tough. And especially with the heat and the humidity and everything. And it's not like he had a full preseason to get ready. Because yeah. the one thing all drivers say when they go to F1 is that physically it's it's another galaxy compared to any other category. Uh, just with the forces because of the sheer speed. And Singapore was probably his best performance of the year. and Which is very, very impressive. Um, so I think that he's... Um, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't get that seat next year, I think he's done himself more than enough good. Red Bull will definitely make sure that he's prepared, and I'm sure he's increased his paycheck pretty heavily for next year. Yeah. Do you uh, think there's an element of him being? Would he be disappointed if he's not in a seat next year? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say he'd be disappointed, but I, I think he's been around long enough now to know that you know sometimes yeah. these things they take their time. Okay. I think what he'll be happy is that when because again you don't know a, a driver can be amazing in Super Formula, amazing in IndyCar. Mm. Once you're on that grid in in Formula One, and that Richard and I don't we haven't had that experience. We mm. can only imagine what it's like, but you can you can understand the pressures you have when you get to f1 mm. you still don't know yourself exactly how it's going to go and lawson right. got really thrown in at the deep end prime example nick de Vries. yeah yeah nick, every category he's been in pretty much he's won and then he got into formula one and, and yeah he struggled yes. yeah so the big win for lawson was turning up on a street circuit really hot really physical qualified really well raced really well you know didn't make a mistake um, and then, of course, he's just finished in Suzuka, which is a completely different type yeah. of circuit, all very high speed. And, you know, uh, Sonoda is very, very quick around there. Mm. We know Sonoda um, is going to perform well at Suzuka, if anywhere. And, you know, he, he kind of had the measure of him at times or it certainly matched him. So for Lawson in particular, he can sort of go, OK, well, I've done my bit. Yeah, I've not blown it. You yeah, know, and that that I think uh, if he's if he's being and looking at the way he is, again, I don't know him personally. He just seems so chill. You know, he just yeah. seems very so relaxed. Everything in his stride, almost like it's nothing. We we sort of look at it like, oh, this Formula One stuff's easy. You know, it isn't. He's remember, just making. It I was talk, I was at Motegi in the Super Formula race where there was that huge accident at the start, and you know, on the radio, he was extremely frustrated after the time, and they played the radio clip, and that's very normal. When you know, as a driver, you got the adrenaline, and you always say that. And then he, I, he went and spoke to Jem after. To the race and he immediately said to Jem yeah I looked at it I, I've screwed up you know I messed up that was my mistake and that maturity yeah. to immediately change like that it's very very impressive um, and I think that he's pro he'll probably be annoyed because you know it's every it's, uh, on that career path it's every driver's dream to be in Formula 1 but I expect that he, he'll get over the disappointment of it in, in a little bit of time and he'll probably go and have Christmas in New Zealand and be remarkably satisfied with the position he's in yeah I agree um, Matt, just before we let you go, uh, back to winning Le Mans or shaping the next Formula One drivers, I'll leave you with a, a pretty good stat uh, from this Formula One season, which is that Fernando Alonso has only spent one lap outside of the top 10 all season. And guess how many laps Lance Stroll has spent outside of the top 10? 276 laps. So there's a bit of a gap between those two. Um, just generally before we before we wrap up, Aston Martin shot up amazingly at the beginning and then have kind of just slowly sort of tumbled away. Do you see this as a resurgence season for them? Do you think 24 they can build on what they've done this year? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the key to it is they've got Fernando Alonso. You mm. know, this is if you've got Fernando Alonso in your team, yes, he's he's on the older end of the spectrum. I think he's was he 42, 40, he's, he's older than, than myself, but you know, he's still so committed, he's not lost any of his speed, and of course, mm -hmm. he's just more and more experienced. So, it's a it's a luxury that Aston Martin have him now. 
you know so any any uh dip in performance we're seeing it can only be on the car side i mean you yeah. know this 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 must be the case so yes it's definitely a resurgent season they have to understand why it started so well and why it's dropped away um financially i don't think this is a problem but as we know in formula one the teams don't stay stagnant they just keep developing they keep pushing aston martin's got a new premises in silverstone i don't know if you know there's some some issues on that side that's that's uh, hindering the progress um but yeah they, they'll be all in a panic because i'm sure they had a really good program and they mm. understood that okay we started well and we're just going to get better and it's gone the opposite way you know it does, does happen from time to time so i think it is the start of a resurgence um but they really need to understand their internal organization because it just shouldn't be going the way it's going not with that budget not with that driver so uh, yeah now it'd be interesting to see how they finish the season and how they start next year as well well, we'll keep eyes on it right here on On Track GP. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your insight and your knowledge and for sharing um, your time with us. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your career. Thank you so much for this uh, extended episode of On Track GP with Richard Bradley and Matt Housen. Uh, it's been really fascinating to hear about these two and uh, all the naughty things that they've been up to throughout their driving careers we won't dive into any more of that i promise <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh we'll be back uh, this week with a preview for qatar very excited for that we'll see you soon sports social podcast network